from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. <clears throat> Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers. Then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them to the house of the Lord, and to the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. So the purpose of chapter 35 is to show a contrast between a Gentile people and the people of God. And we're going to look at the text tonight. We're going to kind of go quickly through chapter uh, 35 and then move to chapter 36. But we see first of all in verses 1 through 5 the testing of the Rechabites. Both chapters 35 and 36 take place during the reign of Jehoiakim. He was king from 609 to 598 B.C. So what we see in these chapters occurs more than 10 years before the city of Jerusalem is actually completely destroyed. As I've mentioned before, the book of Jeremiah is not a book that's written in chronological order, but it is a book that shows us very clearly the dates and time frames of most of everything that occurs in the book. And it does so normally by telling you the events happened during the reign of such and such a king. Now, Jeremiah here is told to bring a clan of people known as the Rechabites into the temple. Uh, Jazaniah here, he's probably the leader of the Rechabites, and he and his people are invited into a room inside the temple. Now, it's clear that Jeremiah had some favor with people in the temple. Um, and these temple workers would actually be witnesses to what God was going to do through Jeremiah to these people. Now, there's not a whole lot of information given about the Jewish men that are present here in the temple. Hanan is simply called a man of God, which probably means he was a priest or, or perhaps he was a prophet. Uh, Messiah was a doorkeeper. Uh, but once in the room here, Jeremiah is to offer the Rechabites wine to drink. And this is kind of the, 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 the most important part of the whole story. Now, they probably wondered, why in the world is such hospitality being shown to us? We're, we're a simple people. Uh, we're just nomads who normally would not even live in a city at all, but would live in a tent somewhere out in the desert. But after this wine is put before them, and they are offered this wine to drink, and, and they're not going to drink it, they pass the test. Now we begin to see what the Lord's doing here. Uh, they refused, we see in verses 6 through 11, to drink the wine because their ancestor, Jonadab, commanded them not to. Now you say, well, who was this fellow? Well, he was a Gentile who helped the mighty warrior Jehu, you probably remember Jehu, fight Baal worship in Israel. You can find that story back in 2 Kings chapter 10. Now Jonadab had instructed his people to live a nomadic lifestyle and free from what you and I might call the big city. Life. He tells them in verse 6, he told them all the years earlier not to drink wine. Uh, they were not to live in permanent houses, but in tents instead. We see that in verse 7. And they were not even to plant vineyards or fields. We see that in verse 7 as well. And they were assured if they would do this, that they would live a long life. So for over 200 years, this community had obeyed the command of Jonadab. 
And the only reason they were in Jerusalem at that specific time is they were seeking shelter from this invading army from the Babylonians. So they had come into the city simply to try to keep themselves alive. So their living in Jerusalem should not be seen as some sort of disobedience to what Jonadab had told them. They were indeed still living in tents, but the situation right now drove them into the city so that they could spare their own life. Now what you're going to see in verses 12 through 19 is God makes a contrast between these two groups of people, the Rechabites and the people of God. Jonadab's descendants, over 200 years before, he had given these words... Namely, don't drink wine. And they had obeyed those words. But God's people could not obey His words. Notice all God says He did to get them to obey His words. Look at verse 14. He spoke to them persistently. Look at verse 15. He sent prophets to them. And then again in verse 15. He promised them security if they obeyed Him. Yet God's people still decided to disobey him. Jonadab told his people what to do, and then he died. And it had been over 200 years, and they were still obeying him. They were still doing what this great patriarch told them to do. And God promises to bring judgment on his people, but he promises that he's going to bless the Rechabites. That he says the Rechabites will always have a man to stand before God. That, that probably means that they won't be wiped out as a people. Their lineage will continue on and on. You know, it's pretty surprising that, that a group of people would be so faithful to a man while another group of people would be so unfaithful to God. Because God had certainly been better to His people than Jonadab had been to his. Amen? He had certainly done more for his people than Jonadab had done for his people. Yet, Jonadab's people obeyed him for hundreds of years, and God's people, even though God was worthy of far more respect than Jonadab was, this Gentile ruler, God's people did not respect him enough to obey him for no time at all. Now, I want to think about something else here before, before we move on to, to chapter uh, 36 here, because it, it, this relates to this. When a godly person gives you some advice, it makes sense to listen to it. Amen? You know, we, we try that with our children, don't we? You, you ever realize how difficult it is just to teach your children something so simple, just a really basic life lesson? Something that is just a no-brainer. And as we get older, though, that happens with us. With somebody with wisdom, somebody with insight will tell us something. And we ourselves react like our own children and think, well, I don't know about that. But look at the advice here from Jonadab. This is great advice. His advice is never drink alcohol. That's it. And I want to tell you something, church, in the 21st century. That is still good advice. Amen. That is still good advice. They obeyed this for, for a couple of hundred of years, and we have no reason to think they stopped obeying it, by the way, at, at this point either. You know, I've given my children that same command. Never, ever, ever 
drink alcohol. And I think that if they were to live their life by that rule, their life would be better. I've, ne I've been at a lot of bedsides of people dying. I've never been at a bedside of someone who says, you know what, I just didn't drink enough. Should have bought another case. Another fifth. Another shot. You know, we, we hear a lot of people who talk about alcohol and they're always saying, well, you know, Jesus drank wine, which is very difficult, by the way, to find any place in the Bible where Jesus drank wine. You can stretch it out and assume that he drank wine at the Last Supper. But other than that, you're not going to find a place in the Bible where it says Jesus drank wine. I'm not going to say whether he did or whether he didn't, but I'm going to tell you when somebody tells you, oh, Jesus drank wine, if you were to tell them to find it for you, they would probably have great difficulty finding any verse that said that he did. But the point is this, these types of people who are always talking about, well, it's okay to drink, it's okay to drink, it's okay to drink, they ignore so many stories in the Bible like this one. A story of a great man of God who commanded his people never to drink alcohol and God looked at those people and rewarded them for obeying the command to never drink alcohol. Not to mention that, that the, Jesus said the greatest of men other than himself born among women was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, guess what? Never drank alcohol. Made a vow to God to never ever drink alcohol. I could go on and on with different illustrations and different uh, passages in Scripture that talk about the dangers of alcohol and talk about how, what, a, what a blessing it is to abstain from alcohol. Timothy, who was a pastor in the early church, we've got two letters that were written to him in your book, First and Second Timothy. Timothy had such a, a uh, uh, con conviction to not drink alcohol that even when he was sick, and needed to drink alcohol because in that day, alcohol was, was used for a type of uh, medicinal purpose. Even when he was sick, Paul the Apostle had to command him. Had to say, hey Timothy, it's okay to take a little wine for this terrible stomach problem that you have. And that amazes me that this man of God had to be commanded to do it. He had such a conviction of it. And so when we look at this story, I, I think that there's a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, Lesson for all of us here. That you can look at a person who 200 years ago told you to never drink alcohol and say, well, he's just outdated. Well, he's just legalistic. You can do that if you want to. But these folks looked at it and said, you know what? He said don't drink it, so we're not going to drink it. And 200 years later, God blessed them for it. God blessed them for it. And so this story of the Rechabites is, is probably not a story you're going to hear a lot of preachers preach on. But I tell you what, it's a great story. But let us not miss the contrast. The contrast is this. This is a Gentile people group who have obeyed their patriarch for 200 years, yet God's people will not obey Him for any considerable amount of time at all. That's the main point of chapter 35. That's the Rechabites. Now we move from the Rechabites to the reprobate in chapter 36. Look with me in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 36. And you'll see that Jeremiah is told to write his words on a scroll. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah. 
and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the day of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will bear, will hear all the disaster that I intended to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now this is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which means that Jeremiah by this time has been preaching for about 23 years. And he's told, take everything that I've told you so far and you write it down on a scroll. Write all the words that the Lord has spoken to you. And the purpose is so that these words can be read to Judah and in hopes that they will repent of their sin when they hear these words. Now scrolls in that day were about 30 feet long and about 10 inches wide. It was written on a paper that was known as papyrus. It was rolled up on wooden rollers and it was read as it was unrolled. Now how much was written on Jeremiah's scroll here? We don't know. But we do know when you look at verse 10, when you look at verse 15, and when you look at verse 21, that the whole scroll was read three times in one day. So that kind of gives you an idea. It could have been too, too big because in one day, the whole thing was read three times there. Now, what's interesting here to me that Jeremiah was able to recall all the messages that the Lord had given to him. You, many of you have been in here for, for, for probably very close to all of the sermons that we've preached on Jeremiah. And if I were to quiz you on all the information that we've learned in Jeremiah, some of you probably wouldn't want anyone to see your grade, right? But yet Jeremiah recalls, I think he recalls it in a supernatural way. Everything that the Lord had shown him all the way up until now. And the writing of these words on a scroll is for the purpose that they will not be forgotten. Now Jeremiah uses what's known as an amanuensis to record his messages. In verses 4 through 7 we see that. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So... In this chapter, it's a very interesting chapter to me, by the way, because it tells us how a prophet recorded his writings. This is a really interesting uh, section here. Because you wonder sometimes, okay, how did it happen? How, how was the Bible written? And this, this tells us here. Jeremiah spoke, and this guy named Baruch recorded it. Look at, look at verses 17 and, and 18, and you see that with me. Uh, Then they asked Baruch, tell us please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, he dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. So if you've ever wondered how the Bible was written, that's how it was written right there. I think that's the only place in the Bible, by the way, that gives us that type of detail on how a prophet recorded his messages. And Baruch recorded them here on the scroll with ink. There's no state of mysticism that the prophet was in. His eyes weren't closed while the Holy Spirit was moving his pen or anything like that. Jeremiah spoke the words and Baruch wrote them down. I know that's very simple and that may be too simple for some of you, but that's exactly how it happened. 
Now Jeremiah tells Baruch to take the scroll to the temple and read it. And the reason is because he couldn't go there. He had been banned from the temple. We don't know why. We can guess, but we don't know why he was banned from the temple at this point, but he couldn't go there. And Baruch is to go into the temple on a day when there'd be many people there, on, on a fast day. And fast days were normally set aside when times were desperate. And with Babylon coming against Jerusalem, certainly it would not be uncommon for them to declare a day of fasting. And again, the scroll is to be read in hopes that the people who hear the words of the Lord are going to cry out to the Lord in repentance. That's the hopes of the people here. Well, in verses 8 through 19, we see that Baruch obeys. And I think that that Baruch should really be commended uh, for his actions here. Jeremiah, think about it. Jeremiah was already banned from the temple. And so Baruch, in coming to the temple and in representing Jeremiah, a person who was already banned from the temple, he was putting his own self in danger because he was coming there representing the person that they had banned from the temple. If you would think, okay, Baruch, where's the most dangerous place you could be and identify yourself with the prophet Jeremiah? The temple would be it. That's the most dangerous place in the world that Baruch could go and identify himself with the prophet Jeremiah. But nevertheless, just as Jeremiah asked, he went, and he went on a fast day. So therefore, it would be a day when it was filled with people. And he began reading in the chamber of a man named Gemariah, who happened to be the brother of one of Jeremiah's friends. We see that in chapter 26, verse 24. Baruch probably stood in the doorway of this room and faced the people. And it also says that he was in the upper court, which means that he would have been in a really good position to address all the people who were in assembly there. And so Baruch read the scroll with all those people out there listening. And after hearing what was read, Gemariah's son ran to tell the news to a mixture of both political and religious leaders. He tells us the people who were present there. There was a guy named El Nathan who had been involved in bringing Uriah the prophet back from Egypt. And y'all remember what happened when they brought Uriah the prophet back from Egypt. Remember that? They killed him. And El Nathan was one of those who brought him back to be killed. Then there was Gemariah who held some type of position in the temple. And Elishama who according to 2 Kings 25.25 was part of the royal family. Some other officials were there as well. But, but after hearing the news, the officials wanted to hear the message of Jeremiah for themselves. Well, we don't want to have any hearsay. Read it to us. So Baruch was summoned and, and for the second time that day he read the scroll. He verified to the people the words that he read were indeed from the prophet Jeremiah. He said, this definitely came from Jeremiah. And that gathered group of people who heard this word and were moved in their core by what they heard determined that it is not safe for you, Baruch, to be out in the open. And they went and they hid him because they worried that he might be killed for what he had said. Which shows you just how deep the Word of God cut these people. 
Now, I know you're wondering, I wonder what was on there. I wonder what was on there. I've been telling you what was on there for 34 chapters, 35 chapters, okay? That's what was on there. All these hard messages that you've heard, all this stuff the Lord has been telling these people, that's what's on there. These are harsh messages. A message that essentially says, look, lay down your weapons, surrender to Babylon, and if you don't, things are going to be worse for you. Because if you don't lay down your weapons and surrender to Babylon, I'm not going to protect you. Babylon's going to come in here. They're going to destroy everything in this city. They're going to kill most of you. And some of the rest of you they're going to take and you're going to be slaves in Babylon. That's the message that he read to them. That's what they heard in a lot of different ways. But that's what they heard. And it scared them to death. Scared them to death. So they say, Brooke, you know, you, you're not safe. We've got to do something to you. And that, that brings us to the really interesting part when we get to chapter to verse 20 down here when the, when the scroll is read to the king. Look at verse 20. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehuda to get the scroll when he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary. And Jehuda read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehuda read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words uh, was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and, and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. So the first thing they do is secure the scroll in a chamber in the temple. And, and they didn't want to bring it with them. Who knows why? Maybe because they were afraid of what the king would do to it. Maybe they didn't want the king to hear everything that was on there. But the intention there was to keep this scroll safe. But Jehoiakim wouldn't have it. He demanded, bring this scroll to me. He says the king was in his winter apartment. Located on the first floor of the palace. It had a fireplace there. And Jehuda began reading the scroll to the king. Oh, we don't know who this man was. It doesn't really matter, but it must have been a man who was trusted. But what happened as this man was reading was a pretty dramatic thing. After Jehuda read for a little while, Jehoiakim would have the scroll brought over to him, and he would cut that section that he had just read off the scroll, and then he would just toss it into the fire. He would go back to reading. He would do it again. He would go back to reading. He would do it again. And the text is really clear to show you how dramatic this whole scene was because it says he did that until there was none left. I mean, after a while, everybody's thinking, okay, just throw the whole thing in the scroll, in the fire. We know what you're going to do. But no, the king is having fun with this. The king is making a spectacle of this. 
desecrating the Word of God. It would be no different than the President of the United States standing up on television and taking a Bible as someone was reading it and then tearing that page out, balling it up, and throwing it into the fire. Imagine how you would feel if you saw that. Well, that's exactly what was happening here. It really appears to me that the king took delight in personally destroying the Word of God. Those around him begged him to stop, verse 25, but he wouldn't listen. And he went even further than that because after he finished burning it, he then demanded that Baruch and Jeremiah be arrested. And it was only by the grace of God that they were hidden. You know, you can't help when you read this but think of Jehoiakim's father. Because if you remember his father, Josiah, who had the Word of God read to him, when he heard it, what did he do? He led the people to repent of their sins. He led the nation to have revival in 2 Kings chapter 22. So the response of these two men to the Word of God could not have been any different. It was almost like the contrast between the Rechabites and the Jewish people here. The contrast could not be any different here. One of these men loved and feared the Word of God. The other hated the Word of God and had no fear of God at all. You know, I can't help when I read that, but, but to think about the culture that we live in today. And, and while we uh, aren't necessarily uh, ripping up pages of the Bible and throwing it in the fire, uh, there, there's a whole lot of people who, whenever they hear a part of God's Word that they don't like, um, they are essentially rip it out, don't they? Well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, that's not right. And I want to tell you something, folks. The, the entire Bible is the Word of God, not just the words in red. Not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels, but the whole book is important. And that's why what happens next is is so interesting. You see in verses 27 through 32, it's rewritten. It's rewritten. You see, if, if Jehoiakim thought he could change the will of God by destroying the Word of God, he was wrong. Look at verse 29. You see why he burned the scroll there. Concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? That's why he burned it, y'all. Because of the message. A message that said, Your kingdom is going to fall. Babylon is going to take Jerusalem. The king didn't like that message, so he burned the scroll. And so then the Lord gives a specific message concerning this king. He says to this king, of this king, he will not have an offspring on the throne, that his dead body is going to be given to the elements and to the scavengers, that his family is going to be punished for their sins, and that Jerusalem is going to fall. And Jeremiah rewrote the, first, the second scroll in the same way that he had wrote the first one. But he just wrote more to it. And we know that because we have the whole book of Jeremiah here. What we see was written in that scroll was the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. As we finish the book of Jeremiah, probably everything that we see wasn't written completely at this time and there. But more was added to it as, as, the, word of, as the Lord gave utterance to Jeremiah. 
Now, what we see here is the beginning of the book we're preaching from now, this book, Jeremiah. And that can only make you, to some degree, and because we can't fully realize it, to some degree realize how precious the Word of God is. That it's so precious to God that He's not going to let anyone keep it out of our hands. Not even kings. He's going to make sure the Word of God is in the hands of the people. And I think that's a wonderful thing. That man cannot destroy the Word of God. Jesus said that. Heaven and earth will pass away, He said, but my words are going to remain forever. And I want to tell you something. Until Jesus comes back, church, you'll have a Bible. God will make sure the Word of God is here. And if you think Jehoiakim was the only guy who ever tried to destroy the Bible, you really haven't read history at all. And I'll tell you, there are people right now that if they could do away with this book, they would. But God will not let it happen. Now I want to mention something else as well. It appears early in the invasion that Jeremiah... Um, had people who were sympathetic to him. They were helping him. Hey, you need to hide. They're going to try to kill you. Some of these people even worked in the temple. Some were even a part of the royal household. They were concerned about Jeremiah. But as the years passed, those sympathizers seemed to grow fewer and fewer. And I see that in our country as well. There were many people in our country, even unbelievers, by the way, even unbelievers in our country who, who at one time feared God to some degree, didn't they? They had respect for the Bible. They had respect for Christianity, for the church. It appears that those days are almost completely past us now. And it's happened like that. I can remember first going into the ministry. And I can remember this is just a little over 20 years ago. And it was very, very difficult to find any type of uh, sports activity or school activity on a Wednesday night or a Sunday. Sunday was just, you didn't see it. And very seldom did you ever see anything like that on a Wednesday. Why? Because there was this fear, this respect, even among unbelievers, even among people who didn't go to church or anything, for the things of the Lord. Hey, we're not going to touch that. This is a part of their faith. This is who they are. Leave that alone. And I know that may seem like a very simple thing. But I think it is a symbol that, that the days of people respecting Christianity who don't necessarily believe in it are almost past us. And I think that that reminds us that... Um, oh, for instance, by the way, you could never imagine 50 years ago anyone getting upset that someone was praying in school. Right? You could never imagine that 50 years ago. Somebody being upset. Oh, they're praying at school down there. Or could you ever imagine 50 years ago, you know, people starting a petition because a football team was praying. You couldn't imagine that 50 years ago. But today, you hold your breath. You know it's only a matter of time. If we keep doing anything according to our faith till somebody comes and somebody says... You can't do that. And, and just as Jeremiah's sympathizers grew fewer and fewer, the closer he got to the end of, of the Babylonian or beginning or the end of the Babylonian invasion, the closer we get to Christ's return in church. 
We're going to have less and less sympathizers in our nation. Our nation is turning into a nation of reprobates. The people in this country, uh, for the most part, have made a decision to deny the Word of God and to embrace ungodliness. And, And what's our job? Our job is much like Baruch's job and Jeremiah's job. Our job as believers is to stand at the doorway and proclaim the Word of God. God has made sure that we've got a copy of it Even though the world has tried to take it away, God has made sure that we've got a copy of of His Word and it's our responsibility to read it and believe it and share it. As I said earlier, it was Jesus who said, Heaven and earth will, will pass away, but the Word of the Lord will endure forever. You read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was a man of the book. And if you want to be like Jesus, one of the things you'll do is proclaim and live the Word of God. Because that's certainly what Jesus did. And this is the means by which God has ordained to save the world. The preaching of the gospel. The sharing of the word of God. The sharing of the word of God to a lost world will draw people to repentance. Remember a couple of times, just here in these chapters today, a couple of times what was said. It was said, read the word of God to these people because if you do, someone may repent. He said that at least two times in what we just read right there. Read this Word of God to people because when you read it, it may be that someone repents. And church, that's it. That's why we do it. We share the Word of God in a world that may not look like they want to hear it at all. Why do we do it? In hopes that someone may repent. Amen. You know, if God has gone through so much trouble, and and nothing is trouble to God, but I think you understand what I mean when I say that. If God has gone through so much to make sure that we have a copy of this book, the least we can do is share it with a lost world. Amen. That's the least we can do. So the Rechabites and the reprobate. The reprobate was Jewish. The Rechabites, Gentile. The Gentiles were more faithful than the Jewish people. Folks, let's be like the Rechabites. Let's be faithful to our Lord Jesus, who has told us, heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God will endure forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for this day.